I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Amanda Littman, the co-founder and executive director of Run For Something, an organization dedicated to recruiting and supporting young progressives who want to run for office. Amanda and I talk about the incredible importance of winning down-ballot races for Democrats to regain some legislative power. Additionally, she has some thoughts on why our intense focus on winning the presidency at the expense of supporting down-ballot races will eventually bite us in the long run. And of course, we do talk about the 2020 Democratic primary field. And Amanda has some brilliant advice on how you can help Democrats win both the presidency and local races. So here is my conversation with Amanda Littman. Amanda Littman, welcome to the podcast. I am so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I, I read something really interesting last night. I was reading through, I was on Twitter, of course, <laughs> late at night. That's what I do. And there was a thread pinned to your Twitter feed that caught my interest. You said something to the effect that you were talking to people and people have said to you about this year's upcoming election. But they're just kind of focused their resources, their energy and their time on Trump and getting Trump out of office. What's what's wrong with that view? Well, I think it's uh, it's it's wrong. <laughs> I think it misses the bigger picture of what's at stake this year. Um, beating Trump is important. Uh, that's obviously a high priority. We can't dismiss the importance of winning the White House, both on a policy level and on a saving American democracy level. And it's not enough. Um, it can't be our priority as Democrats to the at the expense of everything else. And what I've been hearing, especially from donors this year, not as much from volunteers, which is great, but especially from donors this year, is that their money, their efforts, their energy is going towards things that stop Trump. Yeah. And that means that there are huge swaths of this ecosystem of this work being done that are underfunded and under-resourced and aren't going to be done in the way that they need to at a time when we have a chance to make huge progress, especially on state and local government. Right. And, you know, you're not the first person who runs an org that mm -hmm. I've heard that from, right, that going into the general election. I think this happens a lot. You know, every four years, people start focusing, especially donors, their, their resources into the general election. And that just kind of misses the point, really important point. So I just want to point something out about the power of down ballot races. So was it day before yesterday, the um, Equal Rights Amendment was ratified in Virginia? Mm -hmm. And I think one of your alums, Run for Something alums, mm -hmm. Jennifer Carroll Foy, is a delegate in Virginia. So she was a part of that process. Not just a part of it. Um, Jen was leading the charge on this. And <laughs> wow. um, she is, I think she's incredible. We've been working with Jen since she first ran in 2017. Um, and the thing I think people forget about her first election, you know, it was 2017, Virginia House of Delegates. It was like the first big race after 2016. She was running in a primary against a candidate who had run before and people wrote her off. They didn't think she could win. She was a black woman running in Northern Virginia. They didn't feel like it was possible for someone like her to take office. Not only did she win, she won her primary by 14 votes, like a week or two after having given birth wow. to preemie twins. Wow. She is hardcore. Um, and you know, we were with her during that primary and then into the general when she flipped a seat in the Virginia House of Delegates red to blue. Um, she helped pass Medicaid expansion in Virginia in 2018 um, to ensure that more kids had health care just like her babies did. And then when we met with her a little bit later after 2018, I guess, she was like, I want to take on the ERA. And we said, great, let's do it. <laughs> so she did a bus tour across the state. She's been working really hard to ensure that there are the votes for it. She campaigned really hard to make sure that the Democrats were able to flip the Virginia House in 2019. Um, and then she was the lead sponsor of the bill just earlier this week, uh, making Virginia the final state to actually finally ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. 
Um, it's so amazing to see what is possible when you elect really good Democrats. That's amazing. I, like, I actually didn't know the depth of her story. That is amazing because, you know, I just did an episode on the ERA. That was a century in the making. And the fact that run for something was behind a candidate who did all of that, I think that's amazing. And that in itself is a commercial for why we need to focus on these races. It's really remarkable what happens when you elect good Democrats to offices where they can actually make a difference. You know, one of the things I find so fascinating is people tell me, you know, my biggest goal is insert issue here. That's why I'm putting all my efforts towards winning the White House, towards a House district. And it's like, do you not see where the power comes from? <laughs> if on basically every issue you care about, the true levers of power happen in state and local government. Um, so whether it's reproductive health or criminal justice reform or voting rights or climate change or LGBT equality, really any issue pretty much makes progress or gets defended at the state and local level. So another one of your alumni is mm -hmm. Tammy Sawyer in Memphis. I'm actually from Memphis. I grew up there. And so I've interviewed her a few times and she's another powerhouse. I love Tammy Sawyer. She's in the, I think she's city council right now. She ran for mayor. Another person who is going to make, I know, mm -hmm. big, big changes in local politics in Memphis. Yeah, she's amazing. We were so proud to be a part of her campaign. And I know even though she lost that race, she's not done. So I'm excited to see what she does next. Yeah. So the thing is, is that one party does understand this, and that's the Republican Party. They've understood this for over a decade, that the power lies in these local races. They do focus on the general election, obviously, the White House and governorships and stuff like that. But they don't think that any race is too small, like from the school board to election board, like you've mentioned. Do you think that Democrats are finally catching up in 2020 to that to that strategy? I think we're getting closer. I think the DLCC is doing amazing work. I think the National Democratic Redistricting Committee uh, is an incredible partner. Um, and I think it's not enough. And I think it's not local enough. You know, even with all the work being done on state legislative races, the best example I've got here, do you remember that New York Times article? I think it was maybe earlier this week or last week, time is a flat circle, that was talking about the textbooks in Texas versus California. Right, right. And was explaining how like in California, it's sort of a broad, more nuanced look at history versus the Texas textbooks, which are like very dismissive of African-American history in the United States and have a very specific viewpoint around the Second Amendment, things like that. The one thing that article didn't get into that I think is worth pointing out is that that is an outcome that is an intentional goal of the Republican Party. The Republican Party invested millions in winning the Texas State Board of Education, which helped dictate that curriculum. In fact, in some points in the process, the Texas State Board of Education gets like line item veto power over these textbooks. Um, that's why Republicans controlled it. That's why Republicans spent money and invested efforts to win it. And what that does is then teach Texas teenagers a specific viewpoint of history, breeding them to be more conservative voters. Um, it is both a short-term and long-term impact of this work that Republicans have understood. They have figured it the fuck out. And in part, it's because they see the longer <laughs> picture. And I hate to compliment the Republican Party. It's a bad party. At least the elected officials in it are bad for the most part. But their donors figured it out, and they figured it out early. Um, they've been doing this for decades, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, so we have a lot to do to make up for that lost time. Um, and there aren't too many groups who do the work locally the way that we do. 
um, I wish there were more. So yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You're and I was thinking the exact same thing that you just said that they are thinking about generations ahead. Children are reading these textbooks. They know exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing. It's it is intentional. It is strategic. It is long term thinking. It is understanding that the crazy person you elect to a city council today could be the crazy person elected to a member of Congress tomorrow. But that they've been a crazy member of a city council <laughs> sort of gives them credentials. Um, it's a breeding ground. Uh, so it's not just yeah. policy. It's not just politics. It's the entire cultural impact and echo chamber that they have created um, to give themselves sustainable power. And ultimately, that's what Run for Something is all about, is building sustainable power for Democrats and progressives. Because if we don't win these grassroots offices, these local school boards and water boards and community college boards, the rest of it falls apart because it's not on a solid foundation. Yeah. So let's talk about money, where the money goes, because this is another thing that they figured out that we have it. And I'm kind of pissed about this one. So mm-hmm. the Koch brothers, right? They've poured millions and millions into these down ballot races, right? No race is too small for them. You know, they'll put, you know, lots of money into a school board if it means something. But Democrats, on the other hand, you can tell me, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe this criticism is wrong. But, you know, we've got billionaires running in the primary, running what appear to be vanity campaigns, spending hundreds of millions of dollars on ads when if they were to reinvest that in down ballot races, you know, maybe we get somewhere. Yeah, I have no disagreement here. Um, You know, I... (laughs) I have a very strong belief that if you are a billionaire or a not billionaire, it is your money to do with what you wish. If you think that's the best way to achieve your goals as running for president, go forth. Respectfully, I disagree. (laughs) I don't think it's a good way to achieve your goal, but I do think it's a symbol of how the Democratic Party has has sort of idolized the presidency as the solution to all our problems. You know, that we have two billionaires running for president and not enough of them funding local offices. Like, could you ask for a better metaphor? it just it drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's over 200 million in the past month or so between Bloomberg and Steyer, you know, and I, I guess it begs the question, how good is their judgment? Right. <laughs> First of all. Right. And I just yeah, I mean, imagine what they could do with 200 million dollars, how many races they could help win in local elections. It is inquantifiable because it compounds on itself. The other thing I think about a lot is that especially if um, let's say Bloomberg is not the Democratic nominee for president, which who knows? Maybe he is. Well, let's say he's not for, for conversation's sake. He will be running a billion-dollar operation to win the White House. Then there will also be the DNC and the presidential nominee uh, running what combined will be a billion-dollar operation to win the White House. These are two billion-dollar operations running what are essentially the same effort. Yeah. And yet we can't find a couple million to throw at winning school board and city councils in states like Maine and Montana where we know that having more people run for office will increase turnout, which will also help win Senate seats we desperately need. But what do I know? (laughs) Yeah. What do I know? Well, how do we get their attention? I'm sure people have advised them that this is not the best thing to do. For for Republicans, to me, I feel like they all have like a club and they go meet for drinks every Friday and they talk about strategy, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Throughout the whole country. And it feels like we there's just a disconnect in the Democratic Party. We're not talking to each other. Yeah, I think we assume that there is a single a single leader who's dictating strategy from above, and there's not. There just isn't. And I think that's a little more true in the Republican Party. They have sort of a centralized ecosystem, um, but the Democrats don't. And that's a byproduct of having a big, diverse, uh, heterogeneous party, which I'm really glad we do. And um, it means that more and more people have to be louder and louder about how important this is in order for it to break through with some of the decision makers. So, you know, I'm real fun. When people come to me at cocktail parties or 
at a bar and they say, oh, how do you feel about 2020? I was like, let me talk to you about why we're going to win state legislative races in Texas and Florida and Arizona and Georgia. And is that what they want to talk about? No, but that's what I want to talk about. So, um, you know, doing whatever you can in big and small conversations to reiterate that it's not just about the White House. But as far as like resources in terms of people, it sounds like you still have a lot of people coming to you who want to run for office. Like maybe the donors aren't there necessarily, but the people are there. Is that true? We do. And that's awesome. You know, when we started in 2017, we thought we'd get 100 people in the first year who wanted to run for office. Um, In the first week, we had 1,000. In the first year, we had about 10,000. As of today, we're up to about 46,000 young people who've raised their hands and say they want to run. That number has nearly doubled in the last year. So this wasn't because of Trump. This is because people see what's possible when someone like them runs for office. You know, they look at Ayanna Presley and AOC and Rashida Tlaib, and more locally, they look at Jennifer Carroll Foy and Lena Hidalgo, the 28-year-old Colombian immigrant who's now the uh, county executive in Harris County, Texas, and Brianna Titone, the first uh, transgender lawmaker in Colorado. Like They look at these folks and they say, oh, someone like me can do this. And that is such a powerful inspiration um, that it builds on itself. You know, my favorite thing to notice is that the people who are the first to do something are almost never the last. Um, It snowballs. And that's really awesome to see. It's what keeps me um, getting out of bed every morning. So let me ask you a question that's kind of controversial, because I know you you focus on younger millennials. Do you still focus on the millennial group just generally? Yeah, or- we work with folks 40-ish and younger. Okay. What do you think about, and I've seen people arguing about this online, <laughs> about, you know, challenging incumbents with younger candidates, right? Um, I mean, sometimes it's good, like if someone's ineffective, but sometimes, you know, the assumption is that just a newer candidate or younger candidate, rather, is just better. And I don't know if that's always true. Like, I wouldn't want to replace Max. Waters. <laughs> no, I think we work really closely with um, people who are primary incumbents to be intentional about that, um, to know what is this incumbent doing that or not doing that you wish they were? What's the positive vision you have that they're not pushing forward? Um, you know, it helps that we don't work with people running for Congress. So there's a little bit it's a little bit easier in that sense in terms of the political decisions we have to make. But especially when you're primarying a Democratic incumbent, age is important, um, especially in safe Democratic seats. Like It is worth thinking about how are we building generational leadership. But more broadly, what is the vision? What is the agenda that you're proposing? Or how is your incumbent not being held accountable or not holding themselves accountable in a way that you wish they were? I think primaries are generally good. It's especially in safe blue places. It's the way that we as a party determine what we mean, but it's not the only way. Yeah. You know, I'm still on the fence about that. And it depends on the race. Right. I understand that most, you know, people in in office are men and most of them are white. And so I, I get really torn when I see maybe a woman of color who wants to challenge someone. It's just like, you know, sometimes the only way we can have greater representation is if there's a primary challenge. You know, historically, primaries have been the only way in which especially women and people of color have gotten entrance into power because they were never going to get picked to be the next. You know, the party was never going to, the gatekeepers were never going to say, oh, you, you're our chosen one. Um, so they had to fight their way in. We had to fight our way in. So I think it's it's worth keeping that in mind that um, when we say don't do that, we are ourselves acting as a gatekeeper and 
who are we to decide? <laughs> yeah. So thinking about the things that have held us back, you know, the gerrymandering mm-hmm. and, you know, all of the, you know, voter restrictions, right? When and if we do flip a lot of these seats from red to blue, how do we hold on to those? Because a lot of these wins have been by very slim margins. How do we see this strategically for the long term? How do we do this? Well, we ensure that those elected officials can deliver. Um, We want to see proof points. It's why I think local government is one of the best places to engage these red to blue areas because local government can actually deliver. Like, cool, the House has passed, what, 300 bills this year, but because the Senate hasn't touched them, no person has really felt the impact of them. Meanwhile, city councils are lowering electricity bills and repaving streets and protecting women's health care centers. And they're actually delivering for folks, which means that those Democratic incumbents can now go back to those voters who maybe voted Democratic for the first time down ballot because they knew the candidate personally from the PTA or from the, you know, the restaurant down the street. Um, And they can say, look, you elected me. I did this for you. I hope you'll trust me to do it again. Um, And that over time builds a relationship with that candidate, with that incumbent. But also it furthers the Democratic Party brand because you can be like, maybe I hate all Democrats or I hate the party that I see on Fox News, but I like Jane. She's a nice Democrat. She made my streets better. Mm -hmm. She made my commute faster. So maybe they're not all evil. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So what advice do you have for someone who wants to get their feet wet in politics? You know, they want to run for office, you know, but maybe they're not ready, but they want to do everything they can to help Democrats win in 2020. What's your advice? Well, I think it's important for folks listening to this to consider running in 2020. It is not too late. Filing deadlines have only passed in about a third of the states. uh, So there's still time to get on the ballot, especially with local elections. The filing dates tend to be a little bit later. Um, So if you are thinking about it and you're not sure if it's your time, you're not sure if you can do it, runforwhat.net is where to go. You enter your address. We'll tell you what offices are up in your area, uh, when the filing deadline is, how to get on the ballot, and then we will help you throughout the entire process. Um, And as we reach these presidential primaries and as a candidate might win or might lose that you as a volunteer or as a donor are not feeling particularly enthused about, perhaps, um, remember that there are ways to help win the White House that don't involve giving your time or money to the presidential candidate, uh, him or herself. You can go knock doors for state legislative candidates and city council candidates, or you can go work for a Senate or a House race if you want. Those doors knocked will still help win the White House, and they will help with down ballot drop off, which is a huge problem. Um, so it does double duty. And I, in fact, it may even do triple duty in some places. So it's okay not to be super excited about the Democratic nominee as long as you vote for them in the general. Um, but as you think is where you're going to put your time and money, there are other Democrats who need your help who can still help accomplish the same goals and maybe do it more efficiently. So, what was the huge problem you just mentioned? Down ballot, was it drop off? Down ballot drop off. So, this is when people who they vote, they just vote the top of the ticket or maybe the first two or three elections. Um, you know, as the ballots get longer and longer, the people just stop voting. Um, It's a huge problem, but it's a way that we can fix it is by having people know who's on the ballot. Um, And that involves voter contact, that involves ads, that involves, I hate to say, yard signs. It just involves reinforcing this idea that there are people running who need your vote. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize that was a huge problem. Like for me, I'm just very diligent. I like I'm in school. You you finish the test, you go all the way down to the bottom. So anyway, (laughs) yeah, it's why you'll hear a refrain, um, uh, vote the whole ballot. Um, But, you know, there are some places where down ballot drop off can be anywhere from 10 percent to 35 percent, 40 percent. It is like a I've heard it called like a hidden participation crisis. Wow. but a way you can fix it is by volunteering for a local campaign because someone who's, who sees you knocking doors or hears from you about a city council candidate is more likely to actually go all the way down their ballot and vote for every office. 
Excellent. Well, Amanda Littman, thank you so much for joining me. Everyone go out and support Run for Something. <laughs> I'll put the, the link in the show notes. Yeah. And, you know, send money. And if you're thinking about running, don't hesitate. Contact them. We would love to help you. Thank you for listening. The Electorette is independently created and produced by me. Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorette, please help The Electorette grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorette on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorette is by following The Electorette on social media. That's at Electorette on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.